1 Samuel 1 in your Bibles, please. Last week was our book sermon on 1 Samuel. We walked through the book. Uh, For those of you that were not here last week, um, every time I preach a book sermon, I also accompany that book sermon with an outline of the book. And I did so last week as well. Uh, There are, there should be still on the back table. If they're not, we'll get them out there. Um, Still some outlines. And it gives you an outline of the book. gives you a a very minor timeline. And then it also... um, provides a illustration, as it were, or walk through um, some of the dynamics of the Levitical priesthood, and particularly as it pertains to Eli. We'll get there in just a couple of weeks here in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. So we started, and this morning we'll be talking about the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 1-11. through 11. The title of the sermon, The Principles of Vows. One thing that always strikes me particularly when I study the Old Testament narrative, uh, specifically when when it's uh, Old Testament narrative, is that though much has changed in the world since the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one thing that has not changed is human nature. You know, we see technology differences, we see cultural differences, we see societal differences in some ways. We see different laws, we see uh, different types of government and such, but, but uh, though our, our technology is progressing and our knowledge is growing, humans are emotionally and spiritually and philosophically just about the same as we've always been. We, we haven't changed too much since those days. The same human tendencies the same human propensities, the same human struggles for men and for women in the Bible face us today. And in many ways, we can expect the same outcomes as they experienced even then. And while we speak on many things this morning as we walk through 1 Samuel 1-11, through as I've mentioned already, we are going to park on the idea of making vows and particularly making vows unto God. We're going to talk about what they are, if they're okay, when they're okay, and what they obligate us unto. And the reason why we talk about this is because, let's be honest, this is a human tendency. We have a tendency to want to make vows, to want to promise things, um, to um, make conditional vows in order to to um, receive things, to make unconditional vows in order to prove a point. Uh, It's a human tendency to make vows. And so we're going to talk this morning about vows. Perhaps it's not an area of Christian life that you've thought of much. Not something that you've really ever thought, what does the Bible have to say about this? What examples do we see in the Scriptures? And uh, what direction do they take us in as believers today? But it's something that that we'll consider this morning. And as we do so, the vow of Hannah will become the building block for our understanding of something that we are indeed prone to do ourselves and place this human tendency of making vows, even unto God, in its proper place within our lives as believers. So let's jump into the text this morning. I'll go ahead and read all the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel 1, and then we'll, we'll walk through them verse by verse. Now, there was a certain man of Ramath-Azophim, 
of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. Unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then then said Alkina, her husband, unto her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli, the priest, sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. We open the book of 1 Samuel with an introduction to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah lived in Mount Ephraim in a place called Ramoth Aim Zophim, but he was not of the tribe of Ephraim. We read toward the end of the verse and find that his heritage was Ephrath, which as we know from Genesis 35:19, as well as many other places in Scripture, Ephrath was the town of Bethlehem. And 1 Samuel gives us a small portion of Elkanah's genealogy. He was the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, excuse me, Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Now, when we compare this list, this genealogy, to the genealogies that we find in 1 Chronicles, because they are uh, quite extensive, we find in verses 22 through 23 that Elkanah was a Levite and his family was the family of Kohath. Now, it's interesting to note that Korah, you recall Korah, the wicked Levite who conspired against Aaron in the days where they were wandering in the wilderness and Korah who stood up and said, all of us are priests of the Lord. How dare you and Aaron usurp uh, the God's um, authority We demand to have this privilege as well. And so God said, okay, have these people stand up 250 with their censers and and make offering unto the Lord. And as the the men of Korah and then these other men stood up there with their censers, the scriptures tell us that God rebuked them and the fire of God came out from the tabernacle and, and consumed them. And then the family of Korah was swallowed by the earth. Elkanah's grandfather was Korah. So it wasn't Korah's entire family, obviously that was consumed. It was only those that were in rebellion, those who had stood against the Lord. So Elkanah, his grandfather, was this man Korah. And he was a Levite of the family of Kohath. 
Very interesting to note these things. That was in number 16 when all of those terrible things happened um, against the Lord in the days of Korah. And so Elkanah is a Levite. And that's pretty important for us to know as we walk through the book and we see the ministry that Samuel has, though he is not of the line of Aaron. And verse 2 tells us that Elkanah had two wives. One's name was Hannah. The other's name was Penina. Now, multiple wives was not uncommon in those days. Abraham had a wife and a concubine and and certainly took another wife when uh, Sarah died. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. Now, while there's nothing in these accounts that explicitly states God's displeasure with these men for having multiple wives, there's also nothing in those accounts that states God's approval. And that's very important because some people uh, will look at this and they'll say, well, well it, it seems as though God never actually directly speaks against having multiple wives in the Scripture. After all, great men such as Abraham and, and Jacob had multiple wives. And then we see uh, men all throughout the Old Testament. We even see in the law some, some statements as pertaining to that. However, we don't have to go very far in the Old Testament to find God's expectation for marriage. We only have to go to Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter of our Bibles, verse 24, where God says explicitly, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The concept of monogamy is presented explicitly in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus Christ would reiterate this in Matthew chapter 19. And when Jesus Christ speaks of it in Matthew 19 verse 5, he quotes the verse and he says, they too shall be one flesh. Very clear in its expectation that it would be one man and one woman, not one man and multiple women or any other uh, perverse mix-up of the, of, of the sort. One man and one woman, a monogamous relationship, all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Paul would teach these concepts as well. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. All of these speak toward that fact. So while we do not see explicit condemnation of a man like Elkanah in the Scripture for having two wives, um, not speaking against it, it's, we, we, we can't make this into an argument of silence. Because God didn't explicitly speak against it, that means he was okay with it. It's not like that. God specifically gave his design in Genesis chapter 2. And just because every single passage of Scripture where we see one of these things come up, God doesn't say, oh yeah, let me remind you again, this is wrong. We can know it's wrong. Because Genesis chapter 2 tells us God's plan for marriage. And the Scriptures tell us that while the woman Penina had children, Hannah had no children. And this was very distressing to Hannah. And as we will see in a moment, it was very distressing by proxy to her husband. Verse 3 tells us that Elkanah was a devout man who went up yearly in obedience to the law of Moses to worship and to sacrifice at the tabernacle in Shiloh. We also learn that the sons of Eli the high priest, their names being Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord ministering unto the people at this time in history. Eli was a descendant of Aaron's fourth son, Ithamar. It actually takes a a fair amount of study, a a little bit of research, to come to that conclusion. 
a summary of which, as I mentioned, I've given to you on the back of, of your outline. Uh, I will also get there in just a couple of weeks and we'll talk more thoroughly about Eli's lineage and some of the fallout of his decisions. But the focus on the, uh, is not yet on Eli in the text. We haven't shifted our focus entirely to um, his problems and his son's problems. Today we're focusing upon Elkanah and his wife named Hannah. And we see, as we read verses 4 and 5, conflict. What we see is conflict. And when the, the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. Every year when Elkanah offered his offerings unto the Lord, he took it as an opportunity as well to give a portion to each of his family. We might call it an allowance, uh, a portion, and a, a, something of the sort. When Elkanah's wife Penina and the children received a portion, uh, he would give them each a, a portion, um, proportionate portion, right? But he would give Hannah something far more, far more than he would give anyone else. It's called a worthy portion in the Scriptures. And it's done, he did this because of his particular love for Hannah and perhaps as well his regret at her inability to have children. seems likely that Elkanah's greatest gift to Hannah were his attempt to show her that even though she had not had children, he still loved her as much as he loved Penina and thought no less of her for her barrenness. But this would have been a tough pill to swallow. See, these were Hebrews. And as we study Hebrew culture, we see all the way back to the very beginning of the Hebrew nation and, and of uh, Abraham and his family and his, and his descendants that children were excessively important to Hebrew women. In fact, so much so that they felt as though their entire lives were defined by whether or not they could produce children for their husband. And um, call it what you will, call it short-sighted, call it um, menial, call it whatever, but this was the culture in which they lived in. That this was not just every woman's goal, this was every woman's life. It was the very definition of what it meant to her to be a woman was to be able to produce children for her husband. And so Hannah, not being able to have children, put her in a place of great despair. And her husband did what he could to try to encourage her heart. But as we'll see in just a few moments, it wasn't quite enough. The other part of the problem was that not everyone had her husband's concern for her feelings. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that Hannah's adversary, who without question is Elkanah's other wife, Penina, provoked her greatly, made her worry, made her fear, made her fret because of her inability to have children. Penina knew this was an area of particular difficulty, we might say sensitivity to Hannah, 
And so Penina pushed this button as often as she could, making Hannah feel terrible, taunting her because she could not have children. So what we have here is one very distressed woman. A woman who sees herself as having failed at her entire purpose for living. A woman who, regardless of her husband's uh, desire to show his love through giving her a worthy portion, regardless of her husband's words of comfort uh, and of joy, um, she feels as though she has not lived up to what she is there to do. And it wasn't just one year that this happened. As we look into the text, what we, what we hear, what we read, is that this happened year by year. Verse 7, And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Every year around this time, each of the children is giving a, given a portion, and Penina looks at Hannah and says, Hey, look, my children are getting their portion again. Where are your children, Hannah? Another year, Hannah where you've done nothing for your husband. He keeps giving you all this stuff and what are you giving him in return? Nothing. Year by year, Hannah is provoked and provoked and provoked. And, and she's, she's in, a, in a pretty bad way. Now, it was at least this particular year that Hannah's distress brought her not only to a place of tears, but also to a place where she was not eating. She was so distressed that she couldn't eat. Perhaps you've been there before. Uh, in times of great distress, in times of being uh, terribly upset, you just don't have an appetite. You just, you're, you're, you're not willing to eat. You don't want to eat. Food doesn't sound good. And Hannah's there now. And verse 8 tells us that this confused Elkanah a little bit. It, it, it disappointed him. And he asks this, Why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? See, guys aren't very sensitive sometimes. We get it, but we only kind of get it. He asked Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why is your heart grieved? Now, he wasn't completely numb. He gave her a worthy portion because he wanted her to know that he loved her. He was doing what he thought was appropriate and understandable in order to express the fact that he thought no less of his wife Hannah because she couldn't have children. He was trying to soften the edges. So he wasn't completely numb, but he didn't understand why his goodness to her couldn't compensate for her inability to provide children. So he asks, am I not better to thee than ten sons? Have I not given to you a portion that would be greater than if you had ten sons and I was giving a portion to all of them? Don't I treat you better than anyone else in the family in a manner of speaking to compensate? Don't I show you, express to you my love? Don't you know that I'm not upset at you for not being able to have children? It's okay, Hannah. It's okay. Aren't I proving I still love you? He gets it. He understands, but, but then he doesn't. Now I asked my wife, and she felt confident that the women in this room would identify with Hannah just fine. Now, I wouldn't need to illustrate in such a way that the women would need to understand what Hannah was feeling here. Um, I, I, I'm going to trust her on that, that the women can understand a little bit of what Hannah may have been feeling just fine. But us guys, if Elkanah didn't get it, then, then we're probably in a bit of, the, uh, you know, a bit of darkness as well. So, so let's think about this for a man, minute. 
imagine living but not being able to do what you perceived you were living to do. Imagine being absolutely unable to support your family. Sure, money's coming in, perhaps from a kind relative or even your wife is, is picking up the slack there, but you are unable to support your family. Even though your family's taken care of, even though your family tells you that they love you, they don't think any less of you because you can't provide for them, that, that it doesn't matter to them, that it's okay, Dad. Don't worry about it, Dad. You know, there's a part of a man that wants to provide for his family. There's a part of a man that feels compelled to meet his family's needs. Now imagine you had other guys taunting you for your inability to provide for your family. And you could do nothing but bear it year after year. Do nothing but take it year after year. You feel like the whole reason why you, you, you're here is to provide for your family, but you're unable to provide for your family. Yes, you know that they love you, but that doesn't necessarily undo the feeling that is within you, that longing to provide for your family and to be what, your, your family, what you ought to be for your family. And, and that sort of a feeling, men would be very similar to what Hannah was going through. Yes, she knows she's still alive and she knows her husband still loves her and she knows that he cares for her, but she has something that just she can't quite get over. She just she feels like she's not able to do what she ought to do. And Elkanah couldn't quite fully figure that out. But kudos on him for trying hard. So verse 9 tells us that Hannah bore this uh, mild rebuke, her husband saying, look, I have been good to you. And, and, and she likely looked at Alcana and said, you know, you're right, you have been. I am not acting appropriately considering how good you are being to me. And so she gets up and she eats and she drinks and she tries to put on that face. And the scriptures tell us that, of course, they were in Shiloh, the location of the tabernacle at the performing of one of these yearly sacrifices. And the Bible tells us that Eli the priest was sitting by a post in the temple. And verse 10 says that Hannah was in bitterness of soul. So though she had cleaned up, though she had put on the smiling face, though she had done what her husband asked her to do as a good submissive wife and, and doing those things that had been asked of her, yet she was still in angst in her soul. And so the Bible says that she went... And she prayed unto the Lord at the tabernacle and she wept sore. And verse 11 records the prayer of Hannah's heart. It's a prayer that we're going to focus on for the rest of our time together today. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So the Scriptures tell us Hannah made a vow to the Lord that day. We're going to stop there for today. We'll, we'll see her interaction with Eli next week and talk about some of the dynamics of her interaction with Eli. But for today, we're going to park on this vow. The content of the vow was twofold. First, God, if you will give me a man-child, I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. Second, 
no razor will touch his head, will come upon his head. And the dynamics of the two portions of this vow um, are unique. The first portion was the promise uh, to give the man unto the Lord um, comes in part, at least, from the idea that's presented in Numbers chapter 3 and various other places in Scripture. According to the Mosaic law, the firstborn of every child and beast belonged to the Lord. Not that he wanted them killed, like in pagan religions and satanic rituals where they kill the firstborn and such, but rather that God would have full possession of that child or that animal's life and future. And the parents were expected to yield him completely to the Lord. This expectation began back in the days of the Passover, the first Passover in Egypt, when the angel of the Lord went through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn in the land that were not under a doorpost where the side posts and top posts had been spread with the blood of a lamb in obedience to the Lord. And so on that night of the Passover, the firstborn of every child, particularly every child in Egypt, the Jews had been saved because they believed the Lord and they spread that blood on their doorposts. But the unbelievers, particularly the Egyptians, the scriptures tell us there was not a household in which there was not one dead. And on that night, God said, This day I have sanctified unto me every firstborn that comes out of the land of Israel. Every firstborn son, every firstborn beast is mine. And God would codify this in the Mosaic Law that all the firstborn of Israel were to be gods as an extension, particularly of the first fruits principle that says that we give the first of everything that we receive unto the Lord. God counted it as his by right. And so God instituted the law of redemption, whereby the firstborn of every beast could be, as it were, bought back from the Lord. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 20, God, ex God gives the explanation here of his expectations. He says, But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou redeem him not, then thou shalt break his neck. And all the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem, and none shall appear before me empty. So if it was a, a beast of labor, then you were to give God a lamb to buy back that animal to yourself so that you could use that animal for your purposes. And the scriptures say if you did not buy back that animal with a lamb, then you had to, you had to kill that, that animal. Now, of course, God did not say the same thing of a human. God gave no alternative. God simply said you will buy back your firstborn sons. When you have a firstborn son, you will go to the temple and you will, you will buy him back. You will redeem him back with a lamb. In Hannah's case, God, she told God that she would not redeem this child, but instead that he would be given to the tabernacle of the Lord to serve the Lord all the days of his life if she were to give him this firstborn son. And so she was going to literally yield her son to the, to the service of the tabernacle for his life. It was a unique offer, but one that the scriptures say pleased the Lord. Now, the second aspect of this vow that was given by Hannah to the Lord is that no razor would come upon his head. The implication here was that this young boy, if the Lord would see fit to give her this man-child, would be a lifelong Nazarite, 
a situation that we have seen only one other time in the Bible where there was a lifelong Nazarite, and that was the judge, Samson. Samson was a lifelong Nazarite. Let's talk for a few moments about the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was established by God in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Uh, in a minute, you'll see that. I'm sorry, it's, it's quite small on the screen. Um, I packed a little bit too much perhaps in there this morning. But in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, the Nazarite vow is presented as a temporary vow. It was intended to be performed by either a man or a woman for the purpose of separating themselves unto the Lord for a short period of time. We're talking a week or a couple of weeks. Um, the Nazarite vow was, was a, a temporary and typically a fairly short thing. Now, the conditions of the Nazarite vow were few, but they were absolutely decisive. When a man separated himself unto the Lord, he, number one, could not drink any alcoholic beverage. No wine or strong drink. He was completely separated unto the Lord. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. The idea of being separated unto the Lord and the idea of, of alcoholic beverages do not mix. The Nazarite was separated unto the Lord. He could not um, consume anything alcoholic. He could not shave his head. He had to let his hair flow. He couldn't shave it. He couldn't cut it. He could not touch anything dead. He was separated unto the Lord. Dead things were unclean. He could not touch anything that was dead. And these were the expectations of the Nazarite. Now, what she was promising is that Samson, or excuse me, that Samuel would be a Nazarite all the days of his life. In Judges 13, God had commanded the man Samson to be a lifelong Nazarite as a condition of the superhuman strength that God gave him with which to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and to judge the, the nation of Israel. And then here in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah promises this condition as well. Such was the vow that Hannah would vow unto the Lord. Now, we've discussed the vow. We've discussed the two portions of the vow. We've discussed her portion that she would give him to the Lord. We've discussed that no razor would touch his head, that, that he would perform the, the duties of the Nazarite. Now, I'd like to spend the rest of our time today discussing the dynamics of the vow itself. A vow in Scripture is a solemn promise. In this case, it's given to God. And I'd like to talk particularly about vows to God. Oftentimes, as we look at the vows that are given in Scripture, these promises, they're conditional. God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. I will do this if you will do something for me. Sometimes these vows are unconditional, not necessarily asking for anything in return. The first vow to God that we see recorded in the Scriptures is in Genesis chapter 28, verse 20, when Jacob vows to God after seeing the ladder with the angels ascending and descending at the place known as Bethel, and God promising that He would bring Jacob back to this land, the land of his parents, as he fled from his brother Esau to his mother's brother Laban. And there, Jacob vowed a vow and said that if you will surely bring me back, not necessarily a conditional vow, he said, since you will surely bring me back is the idea of that vow, then I will be yours. I'm yours, God, because of what you've promised to me. 
You've made these promises, God. You've promised these things, so I will serve you, was the vow that Jacob made unto the Lord. You will be my God. Now, it's interesting to note that God has never asked his people to make vows. He's entered into covenants and asked for covenants, but not vows. But when they do, he without fail expects them to keep the vow that they made. God gave very specific instructions concerning vows in the law in Numbers chapter 30. He said this in verse 2, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. The simplest and the clearest expectation of God concerning a vow to him was this. If you vow a vow to God, you will not break your word because God will hold you to your vow. Now, the law for a woman making a vow was somewhat different. In this case, we see Hannah making a vow, right? The law for a woman making a vow was a little bit different than, say, the law of a man making a vow. And the reason why is because God does not see women as spiritually autonomous. Fathers, husbands, they are under the authority of the headship of their father or their husband until they are released or until that authority dies. This is explained in Numbers chapter 30, verses 3 through 15. And the gist of these verses, I won't go through them all in depth this morning, but the gist of these verses is this. If an unmarried woman vows a vow to the Lord, her father has the spiritual authority to invalidate that vow when he hears about it. If a woman says, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Or, Lord, I am vowing this to you. And the father hears that vow and he says, no, 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 no. That's not a good idea. That vow is invalid. The scriptures say that God will forgive her for her vow and that vow does not come into effect. Now, if the father hears about that vow and he says, okay, whatever, decision you've made, you've made it, go for it, then that vow is in full effect. She has the approval of her father, even if it's approval simply by not dissenting, and that vow is in effect. Now, the same went for a married woman. If the husband refuses the vow, if the husband hears about the vow that the woman makes and the, the husband says, nope, Nope, that vow is, I'm not going to allow her to make that vow. Well, then the Lord invalidated that vow. She was not held to that vow. But if the husband heard about the vow and he said, okay, that's fine. If you wanted to make that vow to the Lord, then that's, that's it. That's the vow. Then it was in full effect that God would hold her to that vow. This is a part of the nature of biblical headship. The idea that the woman is under the headship of the man, that daughters are under the headship of their father until such time as they leave their father and mother and they cleave to their husband, at which point the headship transitions from their father to their husband. Now, there are cases in which a woman was autonomous in her vows. And that case would be a widow who did not marry again, her husband is dead. She is no longer under the authority of her father. And she was perfectly within her right to make a vow. But there was no, one buff there was no buffer between her and the Lord. Uh, she was completely... If she made a vow, 
she had to stick to that vow. There was no way that that vow could be invalidated before the Lord, according to the presentation in Numbers chapter 30. And presumably, I don't know that we would see this this often in the Old Testament, but as, uh, as we see from time to time a father releasing his daughter from his headship, we might see that circumstance as well. So the gist of these verses is that if an unmarried woman vows a vow, her father may invalidate the vow if he wants. The same goes for married women. Hannah's vow was binding, though it could be released by her husband if he deemed it necessary. While we never see the Old Testament vow as a sacred duty, we do see the fulfilling of the vows as a religious duty. It was, it's nobody's sacred duty to make a vow, but if a vow is made, it is without fail your duty to keep that vow. Now as we close, we need to ask the question, how do you and I relate to vows to God today? We've seen what the Old Testament commanded. We've seen the ideas of biblical headship. We've seen the teaching uh, and such. But how do we, as God's people, relate to vows made to God today? While our Lord Jesus Christ states very clearly that the servants of God should never swear an oath, the idea of a vow is much different. Say, Pastor, what is the difference between an oath and a vow? Well, an oath is when you invoke, we might say, a curse upon yourself or upon another if you've not spoken the truth or if you failed to keep your word. I swear upon whatever, right? I swear upon my, my, my uh, ancestors' graves that I'm telling you the truth. Those sorts of things. Those things are things that Jesus Christ says are not becoming for believers. And the reason why these things are not becoming unto believers is because Matthew teaches us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 37 to 33 through 37, that our yea should be yea and our nay should be nay. In other words, our words ought to stand upon their own two feet. We shouldn't have to invoke any sort of oath in order to prove that what we're saying is true, in order to prove that what we're saying matters. We shouldn't have to invoke some sort of um, extra... Um, extra force in order for someone to look at what I said and say, yeah, that man said it, so I believe it. That man's word is his bond. In other words, we ought to be honorable. And Jesus Christ says that the believer, the disciple of Jesus Christ is an honorable man. So, so oaths are not necessary. Swear not at all, he says, neither by heaven nor by earth. But let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. If you say it, if it's a yes, then it's a yes. If it's a no, it's a no. You don't have to have the tears, right? Well, if he says yes, I don't know if I believe him. But if he promises, uh, well, then he's starting to get serious. But then if he, if he says, well, I swear, well, then, then I know that he's actually going to do what, what he says he's going to do. We shouldn't be those kind of people. We should be the kind of people that if, if somebody says, hey, will, will you do this? And you say yes, they can 100% know that you're going to do it. Shouldn't have to invoke anything else. So, so that's the idea of the oath. A vow, on the other hand, is a little bit different. It's more of a dedication. A vow is, is not about validating the truth of our words, but about recognizing someone's goodness or someone's authority by giving them something that is under your power to give. May I say that again? A vow is not about validating the truth of our words, 
but about recognizing someone's goodness, someone's authority, or by giving them something that is under your power to give by virtue of their goodness or authority. Vows are absolutely not forbidden in the New Testament, and in fact, they're even quite often appropriate. Examples of vows that you and I might make today. My wife and I have three children. Each one of those children, after they were born, I've got down on my knees and I've told God, God, I dedicate these children to you. I am going to raise these children as unto the Lord. I am going to teach them to serve you. I am going to teach them to love you. I am going to keep them around believers. I am going to teach them the word of God. I recognize God's goodness in giving me a child and I am giving back to God something that is in my power as a recognition of his goodness. I am vowing to him that they will serve, that to the best of my ability, I will raise them to serve the Lord. That's a vow, isn't it? That's me making a vow unto the Lord. When you get a new house or something new and perhaps you dedicate it to the Lord, this is a vow to God that you're going to use that thing for God's glory. It's an appropriate way to recognize God's goodness to you in giving you that thing or that you are placing that thing under God to be used for His purposes and not to become an idol in your life. My wife and I have dedicated our house unto the Lord, our cars unto the Lord. Just got a refrigerator recently. Dedicated it unto the Lord. It's His. He gave it to us. We'll use it according to His good pleasure. You may make a vow to God that you're going to do something such as read your Bible every day or pray every day, you recognize that God's Word is worthy, that God is worthy of our time. It's an appropriate recognition that God has the authority over your time, so you promise to give Him a portion of your day. Maybe you make a vow to stop doing something, stop some sin or some vice. It's a recognition of God's worthiness above that sin and that you're going to stop that sin because God is more important to you than that sin. Your giving to this church is a type of a vow. When you give, when you, when you tithe, when you give the first of what you have, the first fruits of, of your money to the Lord, it's, it's a, a portion of, it's a, a, a vow. As God sees it in the Old Testament, he called them vows, giving the Lord, paying your vows. David spoke of paying to the Lord his vows. What does that mean? Well, it means, God, you have provided me with this paycheck and in recognition to your goodness, I'm going to give to you the first fruits. I'm going to give to you a portion of what you've given to me in recognition of your goodness. These are all vows. So vows are not inherently wrong. They're not inherently bad. It's not something that we ought to avoid. But, may I take you to a few passages of Scripture that you need to know before you make any vow? They'll be on the screen behind me. The first one is Proverbs 20, 25. It is a snare to the man who devoureth that which is holy and after vows to make inquiry. <clears throat> Excuse me. What does that mean, Pastor? It's a little bit harder to understand in the King James. The idea of the man who devours the holy is a man who makes a rash vow. The man who takes that which is holy unto the Lord, which is a vow given to him, and devours it as if it's nothing. My wife gave me some uh, chocolates this past week. 
We, 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 uh, we don't celebrate Valentine's Day on February 14th. We celebrate it on January 14th. The reason being, you can ask me later. But we celebrated. So, so she gave me some chocolates because it was our Valentine's Day. And uh, I, I had given a few to the girls. And I had uh, been eating them. And I set a few, a few more aside for the girls. And my wife looked at, at me and she said, you know, those chocolates are, are kind of, um, you know, they're, they're a little more expensive. They're, they're a little more delicious. But I'll tell you what, the girls, if you give them to the girls, they're just going to pop in their mouths just like any other chocolate. It's just, I mean, it's all the same to them. They, they just as soon eat an M&M. Um, so maybe you shouldn't waste those super delicious chocolates on the girls. She said, it's yours. You can do what you want with it. But the idea, what she was saying there is, is the girls will just devour the holy. They'll take something that is special and they'll just eat it as if it's anything else. And now chocolate's not holy, but you know what I mean. Now in Proverbs chapter 20, that's what he's saying. The, the, the person that, takes, that, that just looks at vows and says, okay, whatever, I'm just going to promise God this, I'm going to promise God that, I'm going to tell God this to try and get what I want. But they're not actually caring. They're not actually, they don't care. They're, they're not putting any weight behind it. They're devouring the holy. And it's going to be a snare to them. And the man who makes an inquiry after a vow, God, I promise this. And then once they've promised it, they say, hmm, I wonder what I just promised to God. I wonder what actually is entailed. The idea, perhaps, of the, the soldier in the foxhole. He says, God, if you get me out of this, then I'm going to become a preacher, right? And then he gets out of the foxhole alive and he starts looking into what it takes. And, oh, wow, it's going to be a lot of work. Wow, that's going to mean sacrifices. And he starts to inquire after the fact. God says that's a snare. Solomon perhaps says things a bit more clearly in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. That which thou hast vowed, or excuse me, pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. It is far better that you would never dedicate your children to the Lord than that you would dedicate your children to the Lord and then not follow through. It is far better that you would never dedicate your house to the Lord than dedicate your house to the Lord and not follow through. Look, folks, we, we get up here and we see those things, right? We, we, we make these vows and we, we're doing so because we think it's the godly thing to do. But there's weight behind what you're doing. There is importance behind what you're doing. It's not just ritual. It's not just routine. Maybe it is for you, but that's because you're devouring the holy. To God, it is a vow that you have made to Him. And the Scriptures tell us far better to never once vow anything to God than that you would vow to Him and not pay what you vowed and not do what you've told Him you will do. I'm not here this morning telling you not to make vows. I think vows are a good thing. I think vows are an important thing. In many ways, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. I love to hear when men and women are willing to place that which they have before the Lord. I love to hear that men and women are willing to bind themselves to God. That's not a bad thing. Like I told you, my wife and I have dedicated our children, our house, really everything that we have, we've dedicated it to God. But let each of us be warned. Vows are serious business. God holds us to our vows. What we tell Him is His. 
he sees as his. What does that mean? Well, the Bible does not give us sufficient explanation about how God holds us to our vows, how he handles broken vows. We don't see um, a whole lot of examples of that. But the Bible does give us the stern warning that God is displeased with those who break their vows and counts them as fools. And we never want to be in the place where the Lord is displeased with us. As we close, let me encourage you to spend some time thinking about your own relationship with God. What vows have you made to God in the past? Maybe you've not done a good job at keeping them. Maybe you or your family or uh, your loved ones or those you know have even perhaps suffered some consequences because of your broken vows. Do you have vows that you've made that you need to recognize and redetermine in your lives? That you need to now redetermine, I've made this vow to the Lord, it's, it's already been made, I can't recant now, I need to just do what I've told God I would do. Or maybe there's going to be some opportunities for vows in the future. Do you see the weight that follows those vows? You know, maybe you're sitting here today and you realize there's some things that you need to vow. You need to take that step of placing yourself under the burden of having bowed unto the Lord something, giving Him something that, you, that, that you've been keeping selfishly to yourself. That it's finally time to take that step. May God help us each to approach His presence, to approach this concept, to approach His Word and His character with the honor that is due unto His name as we consider this concept of vows. Let's pray together.